On today's episode of Taxpayer Talks, we talk about the recently announced Texas House committee assignments and their potential implications for Texas taxpayers. We get into the recently announced legislative priorities laid out by the Texas Freedom Caucus, and we go in depth on our own recently announced legislative priorities and how we believe that should lawmakers act this session, it will put current and future Texans on a true path to prosperity. Lastly, we're joined by friend of the show, Vance Gann, to get his take on President Biden's State of the Union address that he gave earlier this week and whether his rosy picture of the current economic climate in the country is actually as rosy as it sounds. It's a jam-packed episode. Let's get into it. Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility and is made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Taxpayer Talks. I'm Tim, President of Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, here with our Executive Director, Jeremy Kitchen. It has been an eventful week. Uh, We had committee assignments. We had press releases. We even released priorities ourselves. I have a lot to talk about today. How are you doing, Jeremy? Doing okay, man. Just trying to stay on top of it all. <laughs> yeah, you and me both, man. Well, you, uh, I know, just wrote a, an article about the committees that just came out today. We're recording this on Wednesday. They literally just came out within an hour ago. So uh, why don't you kind of let everybody know what's going on with the committees? Yeah, so the kind of long-awaited, I guess you can say, and I feel like it's this way every cycle, right? Uh, but long-awaited uh, House committee assignments came out today. Uh, it's important to note that today is day 30, right, of the 140-day legislative session. Uh, the the Senate, of course, assigned theirs. It was a little bit over two weeks ago. I think it was day 14 um, of the session um, as well. So, you know, now the legislature, the chessboard, if you will, is, is kind of set uh, for the remainder of session. Uh, there's quite a few takeaways, which I, I'm sure we'll get into, but there's 34 standing committees in the House of Representatives. They, uh, he, he created, uh, House Speaker Dade Phelan created two select committees. We primarily as an organization, I mean, obviously we'll follow any legislation that deals uh, with specifically with issues to Texas taxpayers, but we primarily will follow a lot of the legislation going through both the House Appropriations Committee, for instance, and the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, and those had some some shakeups, uh, not necessarily on the positive side uh, uh, as, as well. So I'm sure we'll get into that. And then, of course, there was the anticipation of like people because there was so much, you know, kind of notice given to like, you know, whether or not there was going to be Democrat chairman, for instance, right, um, in the House, since there was that rules uh, fight in the beginning, you had the, the political party, the Republican Party of Texas, make it one of their legislative priorities to try not to have chairman from the minority party, right? Um, and it turns out, probably not to, to, to much surprise, right, but it turns out there are, in fact, uh, Democrat chairman in the House, albeit slightly less uh, than there have been previously. Um, and so, you know, it's it was an... There were interesting results, I guess you can say, is probably the best way to to catch it. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we're too surprised by the Democrat chair thing, right? I, I think there was uh, a reduction in the amount. I think, what, they're about 25% uh, this go-round. And, of course, some Im- important Dem chairs, like, for instance, Dutton, 
who uh, used to head education, I believe, uh, has uh, been moved away from there and replaced with Buckley, I believe, right? It was. Yeah, uh, Brad Buckley. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, for school choice, uh, the idea, or at least people are talking about this could be more favorable to school choice. We will see. Of course, not everyone on that committee uh, is in favor of school choice. So we will just have to see how uh, the session goes. But it does seem like the chair is more uh, committed to it as well. Um, and so, you know, we did have Patrick who basically removed or had no dim chairs except for, um, uh, was it Whit- Whitlock? Uh, Whitmire, John Whitmire, Whitmire yeah, Houston, right. Yeah. Who this is likely his last go round. And so basically Patrick made, uh, the, the statement that, you know, after this, there's not going to be more Democrat chairs in the Senate. And so this is going to separate, you know, the house, uh, from the Senate going forward. And of course, you know, the House does lag behind the Senate when it comes to uh, committee assignments. But one thing the House does have that the Senate doesn't have is seniority picks, right? And so in the Senate, uh, everything is completely assigned by the Lieutenant Governor, where the House not only has, you know, five times as many members, uh, they all have seniority picks in the, uh, and the Speaker has to go through all those and assign one pick based on seniority. So it does take a little bit longer, not making excuses for the House. But I think to be fair, uh, this is usually why the house takes a little longer uh, to get their committees out so that being said they are out um and as you said you know the the appropriations committee ways and means committee uh you know based on the article you wrote and kind of the the fiscal index scores of those folks it doesn't look (laughs) too great almost all of them are failures uh, of the ones that we do have records for there are some new folks on there as well and i would say especially in appropriations uh, taxpayer champion Matt Schaefer uh, out of Tyler uh, ha- was on appropriations last go round, has been a taxpayer champion every single session that he's been, and he is no longer on appropriations. So that kind of hurts. Uh, there is an awesome advocate on that committee that we no longer have. I believe we still have Toth on that committee as well. And so, uh, you know, we don't we don't want to, uh, you know, uh, cry over spilt milk, right? But We will see. It doesn't look like we have very strong fiscal conservatives. And so uh, I'm a little concerned about what our budget is going to look like, what property tax reform is going to look like in both of these committees. But uh, we will be cautiously optimistic and we will see and let the committee process work before we start uh, critiquing and seeing, uh, you know, exactly what's what's coming down the road. That's right. I mean, we don't know what we don't know. Right. So the House, you know, the the debate, the, the budget, the actual state budget will start in the House this session. Um, and so now that the House Appropriations Committee is officially formed, right, they can kind of get to work um, and maybe play catch up a little bit to what the Senate Finance Committee has already been doing um, and kind of reviewing and considering their base budget uh, thus far. And so um, that process will get started. Of course, we highlight the Ways and Means Committee specifically because they deal with the taxes that are levied, right, and, and how those formulas work. And even though things like property taxes aren't levied at the state level, right, uh, when you had like the 2019 reform for instance, right, bills like that generally go through uh, the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, And it's chaired again by Morgan Meyer out of Dallas. Uh, It was chaired by him uh, last session as well. But, you know, notably, there's not really anything close to a taxpayer champion um, on that committee. I mean, frankly, uh, the highest we have is is Cole Hefner out of Mount Pleasant. He's a a career rating of a B on our fiscal index. And then short from that, I mean, it's like heavily stacked by people who have deplorable F ratings, you know, and and to, to your point on the appropriations committee, there are quite a few newbies, right? People that have not been uh, lawmakers before. They're freshman lawmakers um, in the House, and so we don't know anything about them necessarily yet other than what they say on the campaign trail. And so who knows? You know, it might might stack out to be 
uh, an, an interesting committee. But as of right now, the only kind of one with a proven record, if you will, is TFR taxpayer champion Steve Toth. Um, who was a, a taxpayer champion last session, has a career rating, I think, of a B or B plus um, on our, our fiscal index. And he's kind of alone, you know, uh, both Matt Schaefer, to your point, and Terry Wilson, who were previous taxpayer champions of ours last cycle, uh, you know, have moved, they're on other committees. They were on the House Appropriations Committee for two sessions in a row, and uh, they got put on different committees. Now, I will say the good thing about for Matt Schaefer that I saw is he's on the Public Education Committee. And so as someone who's an advocate for things like school choice, I think that that bodes pretty well, uh, right, as someone who can maybe kind of stack up against the more progressive uh, leaning Democrats on that committee, um, uh, you know, too. But um, it, it was all in all, I think if you just take a 30,000 foot look at the committee assignments, there's a lot of the same when it comes to maybe the more powerful committees, right, the House Calendars Committees, that sort of stuff. It's all people that are very loyal uh, to House Speaker Dade Phelan. Uh, notably, the Speaker Pro Tem is, is uh, State Representative Charlie Guerin out of Fort Worth. That's one of those former Strauss lieutenants, right, um, there. So even though that position is generally kind of more of a ceremonial formality, you know, I think it, it is a shot across the bow uh, to, to some extent. Uh, you know, um, you've got things like, you know, that powerful, like um, the the State Affairs Committee, right, the, the committee that deals with a lot of the constitutional issues, um, a lot of the pro-life stuff that doesn't you know, deal specifically with things like the public health committee and stuff goes through state affairs. That's chaired by Todd Hunter yeah. um, <laughs> out of Corpus Christi, who on our index is kind of a middle of the pack sort of guy, but he's a guy that was also a Strauss loyalist way back when um, the guy that kind of looks like the mafioso, right. When he wears his black on black suits and gloves and stuff like that, the henchman for killing a lot of bills back when it used to be the calendars committee, Right. Um, the local consent committee um, is, is chaired by Cody Harris or out of Corsicana. That's someone who is loyal to, to House Speaker Dave Phelan, of course. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that committee access go around. So it, there's a lot of kind of interesting takeaways, I guess you can say. Uh, but, you know, all in all, there's a lot of more of the same in, in a lot of ways, too, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I think I, I think it is significant. Uh, was it Moody was uh, uh uh, Speaker Pro Tem last go around, of course, was removed when the Democrats kind of fled to, to D.C. And I was curious as if uh, Phelan was going to reappoint another Democrat to kind of show the the bipartisanship, but he did not. He he, uh, you know, he he elected Garen, which you could make <laughs> you could make uh, you know assumptions based on his record on on just how much of a Republican he is. He is certainly uh, more uh, liberal and moderate than most uh, of the Republicans in uh, the Texas House. And uh, kind of final thought on the appropriations. You know, you mentioned the the freshmen. And I, I think that's it's significant that we have uh, that number of freshmen, one, because it's a very prestigious com uh, committee and typically reserved to kind of more uh, senior members. But, you know, one of the, the main complaints we heard or whispers we heard from the Capitol is that uh, in the appropriations committee, uh, everything's kind of already baked in. Uh, Bonin essentially crafts the budget, uh, you know, uh, being on the LBB. And uh, there's not really a whole lot of debate. There's not really a whole lot of input from the committee members. So I wonder if the reason that we have so many freshmen this go round is just because it's kind of like, you know, they don't really know what they're doing. They're just going to go along to get along. Uh, and the fact that we have the Senate and the House that basically have almost an identical GAA, uh, Appropriations Act, um, it, it seems to more reinforce that idea that, you know, things are already kind of baked in. They've already figured out what they're going to do 
with the budget. They already kind of have an idea of how much quote unquote property tax relief they're going to give. And so they're probably not going to get a whole lot of pushback from the freshmen. And they're certainly not going to get a whole lot of pushback from the members that have been there and have proven that they are not fiscally responsible, uh, you know, with taxpayer dollars. Uh, and so uh, we will see. Now, uh, I, we also did have the Freedom Caucus right after uh, they adjourned. The Freedom Caucus came and they kind of gave their list of priorities. Uh, a lot of them, you know, you can find on their website. They've mentioned before a lot of them are, you know, Republican priorities. I found that uh, the most important one for us, of course, was uh, property tax relief and elimination. And I was very pleased that they actually did use that phrase elimination uh, as a goal. I, I believe they were speaking of it in terms of MO, but of course, you know, from our standpoint, this is the first step to overall elimination. This is a low-hanging fruit. This is part of our Texas prosperity plan. We want complete elimination of property taxes so people can't actually own their home, but we feel as though the, the easiest and first step towards total elimination is MO elimination or simply moving school maintenance and operation to general revenue through compression using surplus dollars. And they mentioned pretty much all of that, using surplus dollars. They mentioned the surplus. And so I'm very, very excited uh, about that. Uh, and of course, I believe Schaefer uh, has the 90% uh, bill as well as a few a few others have filed in the House. Uh, so I think that was the most significant takeaway for us. Did you see anything else that is, is worthy of mentioning? Yeah, I mean, I think, and we're going to talk about our legislative priorities here in a second, but you know, you've got two Freedom Caucus members that have authored bills that we, we support, right? They're two slightly different versions of what we call kind of the 90% buy-down um, approach of the surplus. You've got Briscoe Kane, um, who who've authored the one that I would say we probably support slightly more only because it's like explicitly, right, use 90% of this surplus and future surpluses until you buy down the maintenance and operations portion of the tax to zero. Um, we've got his bill. And then you've got do, what, uh, what you had just said, the, the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, Matt Schaefer, as a version of the bill that's only slightly different, but still accomplishes the same goal. Notably, both would accomplish that in slightly, you know, 10 years or less, right? Which, uh, of course, we're supportive of. Um, at the press conference, you had um, freshman uh, lawmaker, Republican lawmaker, new member of the Freedom Caucus, Carrie Isaac, be the one to kind of talk about that. She's been very vocal uh, on social media, for sure, but certainly on the campaign trail of this being like her kind of number one issue, which is probably why they tapped her uh, for that sort of thing. But to, to your point, she did. She mentioned the buy-down approach, and she did say to put us on a path to illumination, which is different than some of her Republican colleagues, maybe that aren't in the Freedom Caucus um, themselves. And so it'll be interesting to see how that manifests, if at all, right, and what approach the House goes with. Just as a reminder, right, the House has generally been silent on this subject with the exception of what is currently in the budget bill. House Speaker Dade Phelan, when he had his accepted speech right after winning um, election for Speaker again, the only mention of it was for appraisal reform, right? He didn't talk about using the surplus uh, necessarily um, or any other approach, you know, and so I think certainly we'd probably be fine with some sort of appraisal reform once we know the specifics, but that is not the biggest bite of the apple. That's not necessarily going to accomplish uh, what we want to accomplish, which is the overall elimination of this immoral tax. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, and I, it's hard to hear the press questions, but I think one of the first questions that was asked of them was something along the lines of like, you know, why does the Freedom Caucus still exist or what what purpose? I couldn't exactly hear, but I heard uh, Schaefer's answer, right? Uh, and, you know... It, it, that is a good question, right? Because you and I have both worked for former Freedom Caucus members. Uh, we kind of know how the bylaws work and, and exactly what, what it was formed around. And at least at the time we were uh, there, 
Uh, it was about what was an 80 percent. You know, we, they kind of vote as a block about 80 percent of the time, giving a little bit of freedom, 20 percent to kind of vote how you want. So the question really is, you know, if if we're going to have an effective freedom caucus, you know, are they going to stick together and vote as a block? Because they have grown their numbers uh, from I want to say a, a session or two ago, they got down to like six members and now they're well over, I think, a dozen. Uh, right. I think they're right at 12. This OK. Session. OK. Mm -hmm. So 12, 12, 13 uh, this session. And so. Um, you know, it's not the biggest caucus, but uh, even small caucuses, if they, you know, stay together and vote as a block, can absolutely affect policy. And so I think that's really going to be the big question on whether or not the Freedom Caucus is effective. Are they going to stick to these priorities and are they going to force issues uh, and vote as a block and stop uh, stop kind of the the machine if they have to. If you remember, you know, years and years ago, the Mother's Day massacre, right, that occurred because of all, all of the, uh, I, I think most grassroots people, that's what they want to see. Not necessarily just to be troublemakers and contrarians, but to be working together to do what is necessary to accomplish their goal if they're not being heard, right? And I think that's the only way they can do it as voting as a block. And so with a session where we're going to be dealing with a lot of really important stuff, school choice and property tax reform, uh, and, you know, the gender modification stuff and all of the priorities, you know, are they going to flex their collective muscle and force these issues or are they going to kind of just go along to get along, stick, you know, keep a seat at the table? I think, you know, ultimately they're going to be judged on their effectiveness uh, in that vein. For sure. I mean, it's again, similar to the House committee assignments, the cycle. We don't know what we don't know, right? We do know that they have filed some good legislation, but as you and I know, both the staffers, right? There's a lot of lawmakers that do that to fulfill the requirement, right? For their constituent and then have no intention of actually pursuing it, right? In the overall kind of session as it plays out. And so it'll be incumbent on taxpayers, right? To kind of hold their feet to the fire um, on a lot of those things. And, and I know in fairness to the Freedom Caucus, I think they feel that pressure, right? Like they know, um, you know, that there's a lot of outcry, especially on things like property taxes. I think to your point, the question is, are they gonna actually be the bulwark that demands, right? That something be done and not necessarily allow for the least, you know, for the the, the path of least resistance to be the thing that that prevails, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, speaking, speaking of priorities, uh, we came out with our priorities this week is just that kind of time and session uh, where committees are kind of getting named uh, and everyone is going to be talking about what we're actually going to do. And of course, you and I both know that we're still weeks away from anything significant actually happening and, and committees actually starting to do real work. Uh, however, uh, we came out with our one pager and so I actually went to the Capitol uh, this past Monday and we handed out our, our priorities to every single person in the Capitol, all of the senators and representatives. And we will be coming out with a more extended paper uh, in the next week uh, that is going to be going over our plan for property tax elimination for a frozen budget, uh, as, as well as, you know, local reforms we're looking for in a, in a fiscal vein, and of course, uh, taxpayer-funded lobbying ban. And so we're excited to get that out there. We're excited to, you know, anticipating our paper coming out to kind of further explain exactly what we're looking for as an organization and how we can have a more prosperous Texas under the Texas Prosperity Plan. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to the paper. Yeah, I mean, so you think about this in a timeline, right? We introduced the Texas Prosperity Plan back in June, I think, of last year. Um, you know, we've had, we've gone all across the state. We've listened to taxpayers, right, kind of talk about these issues and more. Um, we've talked to a lot of kind of subject matter experts and stuff. 
Um, you know, and we put together our legislative priorities. Obviously, it incorporates the Texas Prosperity Plan. To your point, it also includes you can't we can't solve things like property taxes in Texas without also right ha figuring out the how local governments work, right? How spending at the local government uh, level works, and so we've incorporated that into some of our legislative priorities. And I think it's important to note too, right, that we're still within the window by which legislation is being filed. They, lawmakers have the ability to file legislation until Friday, March 10th, right? And so our current kind of posting of legislative priorities um, is something that might not necessarily change, but like, well, there might be bills that are filed that we find out we support, right? And that um, it will add to it. So I think it's important to catch it as kind of maybe a non-exhaustive list um, at the moment. You know, obviously things that are that, that help Texas, Texas taxpayers are certainly under um, our sphere, um, if you will. And so, uh, but we, we've now kind of officially publicized those, uh, you know, if anyone's interested, they can find that on our website under the 88th Tech Ledge tab uh, there. You've got our list of legislative priorities. We'll include the research paper there, right? Um, our one pager's there too, if you wanna take a look at it, right? You wanna send that to lawmakers, we'd certainly appreciate um, that as well. But um, I think it's a good, you know, it's good that we have that there. I think the thing that we have working in our favor, or more importantly, Texas taxpayers have working in their favor this cycle is that it seems like compared to all the other previous sessions in which we've been a part of, it seems like there's a groundswell of people, not just from kind of the individual taxpayer level, but organizations that are generally beating to a similar drum, right? Like there are a lot of organizations on board with eliminating the property tax, albeit maybe by slightly right different ways, um, you know, but I, I think you know, having so many folks speak, maybe not in unison, but, you know, speak to the same kind of goal, like the light at the end of the tunnel puts a lot of pressure on lawmakers to act this session. And so I think there's definitely a unique opportunity, or as the comptroller and Dan Patrick and everyone has said, right, this historic opportunity given the surplus to actually solve, uh, or at least put us on a path to solve this problem uh, this session. So I'm, I'm glad we're part of it. Yeah, you know, and just, you know, as a kind of final thought, you know, for those who haven't read, you know, our Texas Prosperity Plan or have not, you know, gone and checked our, our uh, you know, priorities for the legislative session, I can break them down really quick for you. You know, first and foremost, uh, it's no secret that our main focus has been the elimination of property taxes. We want to see uh, them actually put us on a path towards elimination and really kind of all of these kind of work around that premise. We want people to actually be able to own their home. And so our plan essentially consists of using the surplus to put us on a path towards elimination. And by what we mean by that is put it in statute that we are going to eliminate property taxes by buying down M&O and compressing rates. Uh, we, we, we will absolutely support, you know, the quote unquote biggest tax break in history. Uh, anything that's going to give taxpayers relief, we're for, but more importantly than that is a path towards elimination. And so secondly, you know, we, we want to deal with the budget, the state budget specifically. So we're calling for a frozen budget. And the reason we want to freeze is one, we operate under the premise that government is too big already. And this this status quo of limiting the growth of government does not actually deal with the problem that the government is already too big. So we're here to stop it in its tracks and even better, reduce the size of government. And when we do that, surpluses increase. We have more money to pay down, which would expedite the you know property tax elimination as well. Of course, we are also advocating for the banning of taxpayer-funded lobbying, which Mays Middleton has that bill in the Senate. I've yet to see one in the House uh, that's as strong as that at least. And so that will also help 
uh, us by local governments being prevented from using your tax dollars to advocate against you and against taxpayer reforms. And then finally, we added in local uh, spending caps and some reforms to local governments. And so we would like to impose the exact same spending cap on local governments that we imposed on our state government, which is population plus inflation. This, of course, would ultimately end up causing surpluses uh, in both cities and counties and special purpose districts that they could use to pay down on their debt, which would assist in eliminating property taxes. Uh, we'd also like to see school MO frozen, which would yet again just expedite the process of eliminating school MO and moving it to GR. And then finally, we want to take the voter approval rate, which is the maximum rate they can raise uh, local taxes uh, before triggering a vote. And we want to move that down to the no new revenue rate, which is essentially the rate at which they would be revenue neutral. And so uh, by doing that, we basically, it, it in essence causes them to trigger an election or a vote every single time they want to raise your taxes one penny. And we're talking about total revenue, not rates, because they play games with rates. And so that is the gist of what we're looking for. Uh, and if we could uh, accomplish all of those or really any of those, uh, it would be a big victory for taxpayers. But of course, at the center of all of this and, and, and really central to our mission of the Texas Prosperity Plan this go around is just eliminating property taxes so we stop paying rent to the government all of these kind of work around that central premise so yeah for sure it'll be exciting right as a reminder lawmakers have until march 10th to file bills um you've got you know we'll have the governor's state of the state address here coming up i guess next week on thursday um well even though we've heard his priorities leading up to now that'll be kind of the, the, the when he says them right they'll be you know declared as emergency items that allows lawmakers to potentially take up those issues before that bill filing deadline um you know and, and we expect as abbott said back in september and before that he's talked many times we expect the elimination of property tax right the putting texas on a path right to eliminate school mno property taxes so taxpayers can actually own their home as he said right uh, we expect the quote unquote largest property tax cut in texas history those should be things he says at his stateless state address and if they're not then frankly uh you know that should send a bunch of alarm bells to texas taxpayers in that lawmakers potentially will not take this as seriously. Yeah, absolutely. We had some interesting tweets this week. Let's uh, let's take a look and, uh, and react to some things that have gone on in the Twitterverse. Yeah, so this was interesting, right? I, I, I was scrolling through Twitter today and like this came up, I read it and I had to kind of take a double take because I didn't expect that it would come from, you know, State Representative Charlie Guerin, who of course we talked about earlier, uh, right? But it, it's interesting in that this is the first time I've seen a Republican lawmaker on the House side, at least, talk about going kind of not towing the line, right? Or at least what has publicly been said. So as, as Texas taxpayers might know, right, is that, and we've talked about, we wrote an article about, right, in the base budgets, they allocate $15 billion for property tax relief. Well, if you dig into the numbers, right, you go to the actual writer where that's talked about, it's not really $15 billion, right? You, you've got you know, the compression that they have to maintain from the 2019, um, 2019 legislation. So there's old relief included in there, you know, the relief that didn't lower your tax bills. There's old relief there. And then you've got 
then that brings you down to about $9.7 billion, I suppose. And then out of the $9.7 billion, which is, in fairness, new relief, right? $3 billion of that is allocated towards this kind of initiative to increase the homestead exemption um, you know, up from what it is currently, $40,000 to that of seventy dollars or 75000 right, um, for, for those that qualify for the homestead exemption. Well, if you don't qualify for that, right, uh, then obviously you don't, you don't get that. And so anyway, to, back to the tweet, you know, he's over here talking about how the House is fighting for $18 billion of relief. I'm not, he doesn't give any details. In fact, if you go to his link, he just wants you to subscribe to his email, uh, email list. I'm not entirely sure how that math works out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I can speculate because I love to speculate, right? Which is, you know, they're going to use that fake $15 billion number, uh, which as you correctly said, you know, it involves uh, 5.3 of that is old compression. Uh, and so that's not new relief. And so really the number we're actually starting at is 9.7. And of that 9.7, as again, you rightly, you know, uh, asserted, it's 3 billion of that is homestead exemption increase, which, you know, it is just not a very favorable way to give tax relief, not only because it only affects homesteaded homes, right, which is a fraction of the homes out there, but it is uh, subject to inflation and usually disappears in a couple of years. And even if that is the case, uh, for instance, last go around, we went to from 25 to 40, I want to say the relief for the average home homeowner was about $170. And so I haven't done the math on this new one. It's a little bit more. So we're going from uh, uh, what, about double what we did last go around. And so I think probably best case scenario, we're talking 300 bucks, maybe $350 off of, you know, uh, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, whatever your yearly is. And so this is very, very minute. Uh, and this is not significant property tax relief. And it's it's worse because it will disappear in a few years, especially if we maintain a high inflationary environment and we're in the five, sixes and sevens of CPI. Well, this is going to disappear really, really quickly. And so this is just not a preferable way. When we compress rates, uh, that is the best way because not only does it get closer to elimination, the rates themselves will cause your, your property tax bill to go down and it will stay down as we compress them. Uh, of course, there's, there's probably a couple of caveats there as far as what local governments do and some loopholes there, uh, which we'd like to close. But uh, the, the general overall you know, statement is that compression is you know, the king of property tax reform and relief. And so we would like to see pretty much all property tax relief take the form of MO compression this go round. And so what we're actually talking about as far as significant property tax relief, if he is saying 18 billion and 15 billion of that is this fake number they're using, we can assume that they're going to throw in 3 billion more probably in compression. Maybe they're going to add more. I don't know. But we're, but basically we're talking 3 billion more. And we've stated before that there's 4 billion left before we hit that cap. And so they're giving themselves a billion dollar kind of buffer zone to stay under the constitutional cap and provide 3 billion more. And that way they're getting close to that $20 billion historical number. But the reality is uh, they're not because they're lying about the numbers and it's not 15 billion in relief. It's 9.7 in relief. So if we add 3 billion to that, then we're at what 12.7, which the historical, even without adjusting for inflation, the historical number is 14.2 billion back in 2008. So we're still underneath that. And so I would say, you know, if this is the case, 
not only is it not the biggest property tax, you know, relief in history, there's still a couple billion short. They're also just being intellectually dishonest about the amount of relief that they're giving us. And so, uh, you know, we, we have to be really clear about that and provide transparency to taxpayers that this is a fake number. And, and even if they're giving 3 billion more, we applaud that. Uh, but we need more, uh, than just that. We would like to see 18, 19, 20 billion in new compression. That would actually be, with inflation added in, the biggest property tax relief in Texas history. Yeah, I, you said it all, man. I think the important, again, as a reminder, right, a budget surplus, especially a budget surplus like 32.6 or $7 billion, like we are blessed to have here in Texas. Every penny of that represents an overcollection of taxpayer money, and it absolutely should be returned to the taxpayers. And the best way to do that is, is to literally use it for property tax relief. Government is not a for-profit entity at all, and we shouldn't allow it to be, and we shouldn't allow lawmakers to look at it as just a free slush fund of taxpayer money to use on pet projects and everything under the sun. And so, um, you know, I'm not saying that's what Charlie Guerin's doing here, but to your point, I do think there is, we are playing loose with these numbers and it is intellectually dishonest to say this, especially without giving details, right? And to just kind of use this as a, please sign up for my email list sort of thing. I mean, I suppose that's a politician's a politician, but you know, like when we're talking about trying to provide property tax relief, a largest property tax cut in Texas history. This just ain't it, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, we'd like to see more. We hope to see more. Um, you know, from uh, from from another standpoint, we had a different tweet. And this is actually from my representative, uh, brand new freshman, Nate Schatzline. So he represents me here in the Fort Worth area. He's been really encouraging as far as what he's been saying and things he's been doing. He was one of the few people who did not vote for Speaker Phelan. I believe he recently joined the Freedom Caucus. And he's uh, he, he's really had a big focus on kind of the gender modification. That's kind of what he, he ran on. But he's done some really good stuff on property tax reform as well and some transparency issues. And so this... Uh, this bill that he's filed is HB 1829. And so essentially what this does, does is it, it provides more transparency. So it requires that uh, basically local cities uh, give a disclosure on their budgets to kind of simplify the idea. And so we we want to give you know credit where credit is due. He's filed a lot of really good legislation. Uh, and I'm really encouraged by uh, this bill that he's filed. Yeah, I'm hoping to see a lot more like this, right? As we talked about when we talked about our priorities, we can't address any of these spending issues without talking about local governments, right? And for too long here in Texas, they've kind of run amok. You know, maybe not every local government, especially the large urban, right? Local governments, we're talking cities, counties, special utility districts, right? Uh, school board, you know, that, that all of those sorts of things need to be reined in. And, you know, we, we constantly, I hear from folks, you see it on Twitter all the time, right? It was like, I thought you support local control, right? As conservative, you're supposed to support local control. The difference is, is that these, these local governments are a manifestation from the state government, right? Yeah. Like the state government is the sovereign here. And like, you know, we, we should we should see that. Like that comes, you see that manifest in our legislative priorities, right? Like we absolutely should impose spending limits on local governments, right? Why, why would the state have one or multiple, right? And local governments are allowed to do pretty much whatever they want when it comes to taxpayer money. Um, and so to, uh, to Representative Schatzline credit, as a freshman especially, I think this is a good step in, in the direction, uh, if anything, for accountability and transparency for taxpayers, for sure. Yeah, I, I you know, I, 
I personally, let me be clear, I don't support local control at all, especially <laughs> because of, you know, that you, you, you only the state is sovereign. Like, this is what you were saying, right? They, they create the city charters. And so the, the cities are not sovereign. And so, you know, when it comes to taxpayer relief, when it comes to constitutional issues, when, it, when you think back to like COVID and mass mandates and vaccine mandates and all this stuff, like, no, no, there's there is no local control to these these key core issues to the role of government. And so, you know, especially when it comes to taxpayer uh, funded lobbying, when it comes to things that are in our TPP, like property tax elimination, at the core of property tax elimination is the argument that they it is immoral to cause people to pay rent to the government perpetually. And we can only deal with that on a state level as far as how our, our tax system is structured. And I think final thought on, you know, who who Nate, you know, represents, Representative Chatsline represents, is Fort Worth. And I think anybody who pays attention, Fort Worth is kind of the last bastion, uh, big city in Texas that is red. But we have a lot of the same problems that all the other cities have. Uh, we have a new mayor that was elected. Uh, I believe her name is Maddie Parker. One of the first things she did was triple everybody's salary, triple her salary and triple other people's salary. And so, you know, these quote unquote nonpartisan local, you know, elections, which I'm not a fan of either. I think we should make them partisan and uniform. Uh, Fort Worth does not operate any differently than Dallas or San Antonio or Austin or Houston, maybe slightly better, but they're playing all the same games. They did the same thing with the no new revenue rate. They put out the deceptive stuff. And so we have to provide transparency and, and, and control these cities uh, and make them be honest and and uh, shut all these loopholes off where they're taking advantage of taxpayers. And of course, uh, you know, uh, we'd like to see more like, you know, caps and things like that we've already talked upon. So. Well, switching, switching gears back to what we talked about earlier, right? This kind of like what people were looking out for with the House committee assignments was that of the committee chairs, right? Whether or not um, in a Republican majority of the House, they were going to kind of fulfill their own political party's wishes as a legislative priority of not appointing Democrats. Well, this tweet, I think, kind of sums up. There, he had a whole thread on this, but this tweet specifically, I think, kind of sums up um, one of the issues that they're uh, that the Republican Party of Texas chairman Matt Rinaldi is pointing out when it comes to uh, the committee chair, uh, the committee chairman assignment specifically, right? Um, he talks about how, to his knowledge, I have not fact checked this, right? To be fair, but to his knowledge, uh, with these committee assignments, you have Republicans appointing a Democrat majority, not just the Democrat chairman, a Democrat majority to two House committees, right? Corrections, the House Corrections Committee and the House Business and Industry Committee. Even House Speaker Joe Strauss, who of course is no friend of our organizations, we were very critical, right, of his entire tenure um, as, as Speaker of the House, someone who's very liberal Republican, if a Republican at all, right? Even, he, he even says that even Strauss didn't do that to his knowledge, you know, that it is important. There's a lot of interesting stuff that goes through the House Corrections Committee, for instance, a lot of interesting stuff that goes through the House Business and Industry Co Committee. An example of that is a lot of these minimum wage laws, right? You have these progressive Democrats trying to raise the minimum wage. A lot of those bills go through things like the Business and Industry Committee. And it, the fact that it's potentially, right, I'll have to go look, but if it's chaired, not only chaired by a Democrat, but also a majority Democrat committee, what stops it? I guess they, the the calendars process. Why do we allow that, right? Why why don't we just stifle that stuff um, off in in the beginning? And so I think he raises a good point that that's of concern. It's a good example of I think at least his party's concern with kind of giving chairmanships to minority uh, my, minority party kind of defeats the purpose of running under a partisan label, right? 
Yeah, I, you know, Rinaldi is so interesting. You know, both you and I, you know, worked with him uh, in the legislative uh, sessions we've worked in the past, uh, and he's kind of really broke the mold uh, for you know what it means to be an RPT chairman. He's done a lot of things that. Um, any chairman, to my knowledge, and of course, you have a little more experience here because I know you've worked within the party and, and even run campaigns within the party. Right. But I, I haven't seen any other chairs do what he's doing. Like he recently put <laughs> put out commercials calling out feeling for Democrat chairs in his district. He's got gone back and forth with people like Leach and I think Patterson uh, on RPT priorities. And so I think he's doing a good job, at least of representing the party and pushing uh, the priorities and pushing the platform. Uh, he might not be making friends, you know, with kind of the the moderate wing of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, usually they lob things like, oh, he's an extremist. And, the you know, the Republican SREC are extremists. And that's why we don't pay attention to these priorities. But uh, to, to his credit, he's being bold about what he was elected to do, which is to represent the platform and the party and impose that on people who call themselves Republicans. Because all of these, you know, whether they're moderate, or liberal or extremely conservative, they all have an R by their name. And there is thousands and thousands of Texans who take huge portions of their life out to go travel and to have a convention and to go through the process and to create these planks and to create these priorities that are largely ignored. And I think for the most part, you know, the grassroots uh, who are involved in that are kind of tired of it being ignored. And I think Rinaldi has been really the first chairman, not that other chairmen haven't done a good job in certain areas, I think they have, but he has been the boldest I've seen, which has actually not made him a whole lot of friends, probably, you know, he's kind of rubbing some people the wrong way. But I do think those that elected him with them in the, the Republican Party uh, are happy to see kind of this bold leadership. You might have better insights than me just having a little more experience within the Republican Party itself. I, I mean, maybe I, I think ultimately, I, I cannot cannot not mention that when it comes to this issue of, you know, having chairman, you know, kill priorities of a majority party, the reality is, is that, yeah, I think like if you look at the data, there were some Republican priorities in the past that have died at the hands of Democrats. There's also a bunch of priorities that die at the hands of Republicans. And I think ultimately what's missing from this, it's not necessarily a discredit to Rinaldi, who's doing what he's doing for the party, right? I think just generally in the overall narrative is that no one's really addressing, well, what do you do about the, the people within your own party that are a part of this, right? That are a part of, um, if you really want these legislative priorities to pass, are you also addressing, right? The issue, the elephant in the room, pardon my pun, right? The elephant, uh, but like, are you, are you addressing the fact that people, members, lawmakers within your own party are doing this? Or are you just rubber stamping them at the ballot box because they have an R next to their name? Right. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, I think the overarching issue that we're talking about here outside of just a, a tweet from the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas is just that. And I do think you've seen over the last few years a groundswell of more and more. I don't like I'm not going to use the term grassroots, but activist types, right? People <laughs> that are kind of conservative, right? Uh, folks that are just tired of the same old, same old, right? You see that on the national level as they're talking about the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling fight, right? Where it's like, we just continue to kick the can down the road. And by and large, it's Democrats and Republicans that continue to do this sort of thing. And so there's a reckoning at some point. I don't know if that's this cycle or, or when it is, but it's interesting to see this play out in the public sphere now.
Yeah. You know, we, as with everything we've spoken about today, you know, we'll, we give benefit of the doubt and we will reserve judgment until after the session's over, whether that's priorities or, you know, Matt Rinaldi's job. And so we will see how the next few months play out um, uh, to uh, kind of the next segment. We're going to kind of turn towards the federal level. We had our, you know, our, barely live dimension ridden president give his state of the union address and he had so many flubs it was hilarious i think he called what, what that that tire tire guy tyler and just a nightmare and so to be with us and kind of discuss the state of the union uh we have our good friend vance again phd economist and we're gonna see what he his thoughts are in regards to the state of the union all right, we are here with Vance Ginn, and he uh, did a great job covering the State of the Union last night. So we're here just to kind of pick your brain and get your thoughts on the State of the Union, Vance. Uh, how do you think it went last night? Oh, man. If, if you watched that, you were uh, you, you had something else wrong or you didn't have anything else to do. Uh, it was fiery. I mean, it was definitely a yelling match where, um, where it seemed like fire was going to be coming out of his eyes and everything else. Um, there was just one thing after another. And and as you would expect, right, he was painting a rosy picture about the economy. The, the unemployment rate 3.4%. All these jobs are being created. I mean, if you would have listened to what he said, um, he's created the most jobs ever out of any other president that it, in cumulatively, right? <laughs> um, and the economy's growing faster than everything else. I mean, he was really trying to knock it out of the park. And if you if you look back at it too, um, he kept saying finish. We got to finish the job, and 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 that was really his message. Where it was almost like he was leading into his 2024 run, like the job's not done. We've got more to do. Um, but as we know, right, and look at the facts of these things, um, it, it was there was very little that was actual factual <laughs> throughout the entire thing. Um, because when you look at the labor market, Americans are suffering all across the country. I mean, we may uh, be doing okay here in Texas for a lot of people um, because, you know, we're not California uh, or New York, but, but a lot of folks, even in Texas, right, are suffering from the effects of the overspending, the overtaxing, the overregulation of the Biden administration where, you know, you see inflation at 40-year highs. We've got mortgage rates at 20-year highs. You've got um, the slowest GDP growth in 2022 of only 1%, the slowest year in a more than a decade. You've got to go back to 2009 in a, in a period of recovery, you know? Um, and, and just how many millions of people have dropped out of the labor force? I mean, we're about 3 million people um, short of the labor force compared to where we were back in 2020 before the pandemic. And so it's easier to reduce your unemployment rate when people are dropping out of the, out of the labor force because look, when people drop out, then that lowers the unemployment rate at the same time. Uh, and so that makes it a kind of an artificial number. And, and then he talked about, oh, he's, he's, he's reduced the deficit. I mean, this is just, it's just, are you serious with all the spending that you've done and everything else? I mean, this was really a, just a, a function of a lot of that COVID spending was one-time expenditures that expired, right? They didn't continue. And that is why the deficit went down. And if you look at the CBO's projection, the Congressional Budget Office, because of all this big spending by the Biden administration and Democrats over the last two years, we're going to be on a trillion dollars a year for at least the next decade. I mean, the, the trajectory continues to go up. This is, and these are definitely deficits, right? Not just spending. We're talking about deficits it's adding to the national debt of $31.4 trillion. And then you add to everything that he talked about last night, we've got a lot more spending to go. So I, I, I think this is a situation where we're watching a president try to make the best case possible for his administration, because, you know, y'all probably saw this, too. There was an AP poll that came out just recently said that only 37 percent of Democrats 
So about one out of three think that Biden should run for reelection. That means two thirds think that he should not run for reelection. So he's got a lot of explaining to do. And I wasn't buying what he was explaining last night. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, man. There's, I mean, there's so many things we can talk about here. I, I, you know, had to kind of sleep through the entire thing as well, I guess. And, you know, it's funny, right? Seeing the reaction, a lot of it's expected, right? The, the hyper-partisan sort of thing, like you're not going to have, generally speaking, Republicans clap, right? When the Democrat does something. But one of the more fascinating kind of exchanges took place when um, he brought up the idea, right? The current debt ceiling fight. I use air quotes because I feel like it's just theater every time this comes up, right? But he brought up or, or wanted to kind of pin this awkward moment of like, well, are we going to touch social security? Right. And, and Medicare, Medicare, like, and you saw this moment where like you had this kind of the Republicans like, Oh, that's unfair. Right. And then suddenly it was like, it was no longer a state of the union. It was like, they were like litigating it on the floor. Right. You know, with this approval, what are your thoughts there? I mean, you know, the, yeah. the more libertarian guy in me, you have to do that. You have to touch, right. Those quote unquote entitlements to really right address some of this stuff. Is it is it concerning to you? Is it something I shouldn't be concerned about? Right, that seemingly the writing's on the wall that they're not going to touch that when it comes uh, comes down to it. Yeah, I mean, Jeremy, I think you're right. I mean, we we they have to touch it. Um, I know it's a political almost non-starter, and you don't want to win. You're going to lose votes if you say that you're for doing something to Social Security and Medicare. But the truth of the matter is, we got to live in the factual world. We can't live in some fantasy world. We got to live in reality. And the reality is that Social Security and Medicare are the biggest parts of the budget and they're growing the fastest. I mean, we've got the baby boomers who are retiring, who are, who are getting retirement in Social Security and, and Medicare and everything else. And they're growing that those payments are growing at a fast, those expenditures really are growing at a faster rate than the tax receipts that are coming in. And that's why the Congressional Budget Office has said both of them are essentially going to be insolvent over the next decade. I mean, sure, each we're, year, we're not going to get to enjoy them, right? No, right. Yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and so you've got to do something about it, not only for the budget process today, but also for the future. And and and, and even over the next few years, you can start to see Social Security, I think it's um, 2026, maybe it's the, the latest date that they came up with, that you, after, in 2026, they're not going to have enough funds to pay out the full benefits of what people were expecting in Social Security. So that means instead of getting 100% of what you were going to get, you're going to get 80% or maybe Therefore, 70%. A cut, right? A it cut. would cut itself. Right? Yes. So it's either we got to do something today to actually deal with those problems down the road um, or we wait till a crisis happens. And as we know, Congress likes to wait for these crises to happen. But it, but it, but instead, the, the, the logical, the conservative, the responsible, I may should use that word, responsible way to do this is to do something now. And, and some of those could be raising the retirement age. People are, are living longer. People are working longer than they than they have in the past. Um, and, and, and as you guys know, I mean, look, Social Security was created in 1935 when the average life expectancy, I think, was around 55. So the, the, the time you were going to get um, Social Security was 63. The vast majority of people weren't going to be on it at all if, if for very long. Now the life expectancy is 78, you know, 77, 78. Uh, people are living on it a lot longer, and that's a good thing. I think that's a part of being more prosperous and a free market capitalism sort of system. Um, that's a benefit of us having a longer life expectancy, but it puts more of a drain on these mandatory um, safety nets that we have out there. And I, I, I make sure that I don't call them entitlements. I don't think we're entitled to anything, you know, and, and, and that has 
in some sense, brainwashed us, changed our thinking about these programs over time to now Republicans don't even want to touch it. And I think we have to in order to bend the cost curve for spending over time. What do you call them? Li liabilities? Is that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are liabilities and, and now there's unfunded liabilities. So we know there's $31.4 trillion in national debt, right? But if you include the unfunded liabilities, what does that mean? That means the net present value of the payments that are going to go out, the expected payments over time, let's say over the next hundred years, and then the benefits uh, of, of the taxes that are being collected, the net present value of that says that we have about another 100 to $200 trillion, treat with a T, um, unfunded liabilities. So it's a massive cost that's coming in the future if we don't do something about it. Yeah, I'll be honest, Vance. So, you know, when you were making the, the comment about the age, you know, uh, for a second, I thought you were going to go Bill Gates on us and, uh, and and say maybe we need less people or something like that. No. But uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you think <laughs> it's a positive that, that people are living longer. Of course, the, the social program is, is the problem, right? Yes, uh, but you know, overall, looking at uh, I think the the financial situation of the country in general, what the Fed's doing, uh, you know, raising rates uh, with the goal of what they're calling a a soft landing, and I I, I think I, I don't know if it was TPPF or, or someone else, but I just saw a paper about they expect Texas to have a soft landing because of our strong economy, and so the the question it really is one: Do you think it, it, a lot of people have speculated? We can have a soft landing. To my knowledge, I don't know if we ever have had a soft landing in the past from a federal level. But yeah. if let's say they crash at the federal level, you know, under the weight of all these high high interest rates, uh, the goal is really to destroy the economy, right? What mm -hmm. is what is the probability of Texas having a soft landing if the, the rest of the nation goes uh, goes rough? And you know, what can we be doing on the state level uh, with the foresight of likely we're in the midst of an economic downturn? What kind of policies can we focus on this legislative session to help Texas out to have possibly that that soft landing? Yeah, no, I think that's the way to think about it, Tim. I mean, when you think about the State of the Union and Biden was trying to make the case the State of Union is strong and everything else, there are so many weaknesses and headwinds that are out there within the economy. Um globally, the dealing with China. I mean, there's so many areas where they have been a just just a failure. It's a complete failure of what's going on. The states have to be where the action is going to happen. And what I'm hopeful for is places like Texas can really rule the day, right? Right. Really step forth this pro-growth, pro-liberty sort of policies that can help to withstand the nonsense coming out of D.C. So, you know, I've been looking at the macro economy for a number of years now. Uh, we talked about a little bit where I'm, you know, I worked in the White House for a year. I was looking at a lot of big macroeconomic models and thinking about where the economy was going to go. And of course, all that all that hit the fan whenever COVID hit while I was in the White House. But when you're thinking about all these economic factors, the headwinds that are hitting us right now, where you have the the deficits running over a trillion dollars a year, the net interest on the debt alone is going to be over a trillion dollars. So it's going to crowd out other areas of the budget. That means they're going to run even larger deficits. That means that the Federal Reserve is going to have to buy more of that debt put more money in the economy, create more inflationary pressures. So in interest rates are going to have to go up higher than they ordinarily or otherwise would, right? So right now, their overnight lending rate is 4.75%. That's the high of their range of 45 to 4.75%. I mean, that's the highest that we've had in, in like 20 years, right? So I mean, we're, we're sitting in a very high period of time. And, and that what that does 
I'm thinking about it for a little bit economics right here um, with the Austrian school, which is part of, of my um, learning and, and, and understanding of the economy is it changes the orders of production. What we've had over the last couple of years with low interest rates, um, all this money being pumped in the economy is a lot of artificial growth, a lot of artificial jobs, a lot of uh, propped up businesses throughout the economy. And whenever that goes through, that doesn't go through the orders of production um, all at one time. It usually goes to the higher orders first, and then it starts to trickle down to other areas. And that's their trickle-down economics is through all this government spending and Keynesian economics and everything else. Well, what has to happen when the interest rates go up, the cost of production, the cost of doing business, those orders of production begin to fail. And that's what we're seeing now as a lot of small businesses are starting to lay off workers across the economy. And then we'll see more of that happen throughout the economy as well. I, I mentioned some of that background because – I do think this is going to be a severe recession. I, I honestly think we're already in a recession, that this has been ongoing, that we've had some propped up numbers to make it indicate that we're not in a recession, but that we really are just given what's what's on the ground, what the numbers are and what it, people that I'm talking with and businesses that I'm talking with. Right. And I think it's going to be more severe this year because the labor market is always the lagging indicator of the overall economic growth. Right. People don't just fire people right away. It takes a while. I say all that Texas is going to do better than the other states than the national economy. We have people that are moving here, right? So that's bringing about entrepreneurship, that's bringing about growth. And we have a, a more sensible regulatory climate than a lot of other places. We have less spending than a lot of places, lower taxes. Uh, if you look at tax foundations numbers and others that are out there, we usually score pretty high. Um, in economic freedom from the Fraser Institute, we have the fourth most economically free state in the nation. Um, Florida's number one, though. We've got some we got some improving to do, and there's a lot of improvement that we need to do. And I think that's what's so important about you know the work that y'all are doing, work that we're kind of doing in, together with with looking at finding ways to stop spending, spend less find ways to lower taxes. And when you're thinking about taxes in Texas that you really want to lower, you could lower the franchise tax, which ultimately we should probably get rid of that. Um, but that's not really hitting people every day. Sales taxes, you know, people aren't out there in, in droves saying we're, we're, we're just worried or the, the sales tax is too high. The thing that people are so concerned about is losing their home from the immoral tax of a property tax. And we've got to put that on a path to elimination as quickly as possible. And we have an historic opportunity to do that right now because of the 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 growth of the Texas economy. A lot of some of it's inflated, right? But but it, but we need to bank on that inflated growth because that will create a new base. That, that doesn't mean that the inflationary um, uh, revenue will just go down and drop away. It will become the new base unless we have a severe recession. Um, and so I think all of that, allowing for spending restraint, right, freeze the budget, um, provide for property tax relief, get more money into people's pockets across the economy, businesses having more money in their pocket, they can hire more workers. That will help us to withstand the deep economic recession that we're going to see across the economy. And that's what happened during the Obama recession, right? The Great Recession. Texas wasn't hit nearly as hard as a lot of other places across the economy. Uh, and so I think there's, there's part of that that we can see happen here again. You know, I hear all that, right? Yeah. Bring it, bring it back to the State of the Union. Yeah. I, I hear you say all that. It's like, man, these numbers they exist, and then you hear the president say something <laughs> completely different. I, I assume experts look at right, like 
the things he's going to say beforehand, these have been teleprompted probably since there was a teleprompter, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe you know. I don't know the last time a president was like, the state of our union is not strong, right? I, I no. assume it's just kind of the buzzword um, that's, that's used, uh, uh, I guess, in, in modern times. But what yeah. I hear you saying, and, and I would agree based on what we consume, the content we try to produce, right, is that there's a lot of indicators that say it's absolutely not strong. What are your thoughts there, right? As someone who worked in the White House, I assume you kind of dealt with this sort of stuff and, and the nitty gritty that that came with kind of the numbers under the Trump administration, obviously pre-COVID, COVID yeah. being this uh, kind of thing that just happened uh, sort of out of nowhere. What what do you think there? You know, like what are Americans to think? You, you alluded to the polling, right? And I saw that too, right? The polling that came out right before the State of the Union. And you've got prognosticators talking about how there's Democrats at play that don't want him to run. My worry is that do they not want him to run because they want someone even worse? Right. Right. Like that's going to bring in a, a ton more of not entitlement, but liabilities. Right. I, I don't mm -hmm. know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So look, whenever I was in the White House um, and so I was we were preparing for the State of the Union uh, in 2020 and which would have been the last day of the union um, by President Trump. We had a review process that went through several layers of review uh, before that night. And so it's going to be on the teleprompter. You got to make sure all the numbers are accurate. And, you know, we had uh, I was in the Office of Management and Budget. So we made sure all the budget numbers were accurate. It also went through the Council of Economic Advisors to make sure that, you know, economic. I mean, I was, I'm an economist, too, so I can check those as well. But, you know, it went through multiple stages throughout throughout the White House complex. And um, because we want to make sure that things are accurate. Now, the president, when he gets up there, like President Trump did, he wouldn't always go on off. He would go off script. Right. And, and, and come up with some other things along the way. But I would argue uh, my position would be that what he was saying was at least was accurate. You could say things were certain were for coming from a political angle. I mean, they're politicians. They're always going to come at it from a political angle. But the data was accurate. What what bothers me about what happened last night and what we've or, or, or at the State of the Union, um, whenever we, we air this, right, is that the, the what, what, there was so much that it wasn't accurate that whenever you're looking at the economy, you've got to look at it through a rose colored glasses to really feel like this is a strong economy, that this is a strong union. And you're right. I mean, I don't know that there's been any <laughs> president that said that this is not a strong state of the union right now. I mean, that that, that would be against uh, whatever it is that they're doing. They can't say that they're wrong. Um, and And so. And, and, and so with all of that, last night was what, or at the State of the Union was one reason why it was so problematic, uh, in my view, whenever you had the president basically going out there and trying to almost debate things. It was like, what are you saying? He was looking off in, in kind of a space, maybe over to certain people and kind of staring there for a minute. Um, and, and, and that just didn't seem to fit well with the situation of having the State of the Union, where you're talking to the American people. It was almost like he was just talking to the people in the room. Right. To the Republicans saying, I'm coming after you. This is all the stuff that we're going to do uh, instead of making it a case for the American people. And I think that's one reason why, you know, we've seen some stuff on Twitter saying, you know, all this could have just been done in an email. Like, is the State of the Union really even necessary anymore, um, given that it's just a campaign speech and not talking to the American people saying, you know, this is where we're at. This is the, where we're going to be in the future. And I would have hoped that that's a bit of where we would have been more. Uh, I think Governor uh, Sarah um, Huckabee Sanders, right, was at least telling a vision for the future. 
I didn't see a vision for the future other than we're just going to keep doing the same things because what we're doing is already working from Biden's perspective. And, and if, you, if you look at the economy, you look at the real numbers underneath what all the, the, the fluff that they have at top, it, it's not a good economic situation. So uh, a couple of things that he uh, said last night, I, I believe he said, you know, they're, they're always Democrats are always going to harp on, you know, you know, billionaires not paying their fair share. And he talked yeah. about I think you mentioned something like the the largest corporations pay. They made 40 billion or something like that and paid zero in taxes. Right. Um, which to me, I would say is is has got to be a lie. Right. I think I think most people just don't understand how corporations work and yeah. how uh, the, the system is set up. So that, you know, there's a massive tax loopholes, which all of these politicians use, by the yeah. way, right? Um, and then he, he said something about uh, like junk fees, right? He was talking about airline fees and talking about credit card fees and things like that. And so just kind of want your thoughts on what, like, what is the truth? Sometimes I think that, you know, we use this 1984 doublespeak. Like, I feel like he, it, it's literally just like right out of Orwell's book. Like, it's like, he's just straight up lying and people are buying it hook, line, sinker. So could you kind of straighten out what the tax structure of the U.S. is and, 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 if the rich are paying their fair share, and then maybe uh, touch on those um, those junk fees he was talking about, which of course is the government entering into the private market, telling people what they can and can't do, and and why that's a bad idea. I'm going to assume you're going to think that's a bad idea as well. So. Yeah, it, it is a bad idea, Tim. Um, and you know, if you if you look at the data, like look at the actual data that's out there, the top one percent of income earners. You know, they, they pay a, a lot of the taxes. 40% of the taxes are paid by them. Um, the top 10% of income earners pay about 70% of the taxes, okay? So top 10% pay 70% of all taxes that are collected. And this is income taxes. Um, payroll tax is a little bit different because lower income people and upper income people, they all pay it. And there's a cap on how much those payroll taxes are on the amount of income. So, they, you know, they don't pay as much at the top. But look, if just the income taxes, which is what primarily funds the government, Okay, uh, our federal government. Anyway, fortunately, we're blessed to not have an income tax in Texas. Hopefully we never do. Um, but the top 50 percent of income earners across the United States pay 97 percent of the taxes, 97, 97 um, cents out of every dollar of taxes that are collected are paid by the top 50 percent of income earners, which is about um, sixty five thousand dollars a year. Right. Is about is about the average. So any but we're above that. They're the ones that are primarily making uh, paying all the taxes. And and I wouldn't consider sixty thousand or seventy thousand dollars a year um, being rich, right? Um, and that means that the bottom fifty percent of income earners, when you look at it from that perspective, um, only are paying about three out of every uh, um, three cents out of every dollar towards towards taxes. And so we have a situation that I think it's not fair that these individuals don't have as much skin in the game with as much money as being spent by our Congress of taxpayer dollars. There are fewer and fewer people that care because they're not really paying as much in taxes. They're getting big tax um, refunds, right? They're getting even more in tax refunds than what they paid in because of a lot of the safety nets and the exemptions and the tax deductions and child tax credit and everything else that you want to add in there. Um, they're not really paying the system, so they have no interest. There's no skin in the game, right, of, of making sure that those dollars are being spent wisely, if they should be spent at all. Um, and so it ends up being that the, the upper income earners um, are the ones that are getting most engaged with what's happening and where those dollars are going. And they end up also being the ones that get a lot of the exemptions and the loopholes and the deductions. I mean, they talk about sometimes how 
um, who are they talking about? Warren Buffett would would pay you know 15% because he's paying the capital gains rate based on the returns of his investments and not on income tax rates of you know 30% or whatever the rate would be, where his tax rate, effective tax rate was lower than his secretary's. Well, that's because he's playing within the rules of the game. This isn't illegal. This is legal. It's set up such that it's going to help them out in the process. Um, and that's why I think we need a flat tax. You need a broadest base possible with a flat tax um, rate, just one rate overall, would be a much more efficient way of doing it and having more people to have more skin in the game. And with corporate taxes, look, and the, the Trump tax cuts lowered it from 35%, the highest in the developed world, down to 21%, which is about the average in the developed world, okay? So that's why we need to have it even lower. But at the end of the day, businesses don't pay taxes. A business can't pay taxes, right? It's people. Uh, people pay taxes. A business is just an entity that helps um, uh, helps transactions to happen in the marketplace for individuals to run th to run through for those exchanges to happen. But it's all about people. So businesses submit taxes, but people pay for them through the form of higher taxes or um, 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 lower wages, fewer jobs, and higher prices. Right. Higher prices is, is that is the last factor there. And it slows economic growth in the process. And so this is all just a scheme of their socialist ways to try to equalize outcomes. When, in fact, in a free market capitalist system, the reason why we have so much economic growth and prosperity is because it understands that we are all we're, we're not equal. We're, we're equal uh, in, in the sense of the face of the law, um, based on the Constitution. But we all have different things that we're going to bring to the table. So we need equal opportunity. That, that, that's important, but not equal outcomes, because then um, you're going to shrink the pie. You're going to have less economic growth and prosperity in the process. And so their whole game is we need fairness. Fairness is in, in the eyes of the beholder, right? Just like beauty. What's fair to you, Tim, is not fair, fair to me. It's probably not as fair to, to Jeremy, right? And so we all have different perspectives on this. And that's the same thing with the tax code and everything else. And so that's why ultimately at the end of the day, guys, um, it's all about spending. Spending is taxation. Spending is what we're going to have to fund, uh, whether it be taxes today or tax in the future through inflation or something or interest that we're going to have to pay on the debt. All this stuff is going to come home to roost through the form of higher prices, lower wages, fewer jobs, less economic growth. You see what I mean? It, it's, this, it's this vicious cycle that we're going to keep getting into, and especially if we keep um, falling into this trap of what's fair, when really we need to think about Cut spending, cut taxes, cut regulations, let the economy grow, and that way we have more prosperity and more liberty. You mentioned the the spending. You know, I, I'm going to butcher the statistic, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's like you know, if you if you taxed at 100% of earnings, all the right, all the rich that they want to tax, it still wouldn't pay right no. for everything, all the all the uh, entitlement slash uh, liability, right? Yes. Uh, and, and and so I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's like the, the elephant in the room is that no one wants to touch spending, mm -hmm. right? The reality is, is like, we're all kind of selfishly be like, well, it's them, it's it, right? Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's the unfortunate kind of side effect of, of what our systems become, I suppose, you know, and, and it, you know, at the State of the Union, all I heard, right, was, how we're going to spend more, right? Yes. How we're going to expand these current programs to to reach whomever and and whoever, right? Um, as a, as opposed to not having them at all, right? Yep. Making them smaller and making it to where, uh, uh, you know, everyone kind of just 
has to pull themselves up their own team yeah. feed, right? You yeah. Know? And, and Jeremy, one other thing that Tim asked about those junk fees and everything, I had a piece that I wrote recently for the American Economic Institute, um, American Institute for Economic Research, AIER, talking about these junk fees, um, where these aren't just junk fees where it's like, okay, they're charging a fee uh, that they shouldn't be charging. And if we just have the government take it away, that everything is going to be hunky dory. Everything's yeah, going to be what okay. What was the joke he used last night? It was like the resort fee. Right? Yeah. It was, yeah. 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 But, but, you know, those fees like on your bank account, if you uh, get overdrawn, if we don't have those in place, fewer people are going to have bank accounts. If we don't have the fees on the resort fees, fewer people are going to have opportunities to go to those. So there's, there's always an unintended consequence. There is a reason for those fees that are there. We maybe think they're too high or something else, but then if they're too high, that's what brings about competition in the marketplace or your consumer sovereignty to say, you know what? I don't want to go to that resort then. I want to go to this one because they have a lower fee. And, and it's I not, don't want to overdraw my account, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you don't have government set in price controls. That never works. It always leads to shortage or other unintended consequences and that'll be the exact same scenario that we'll see from this awesome well vance i think that is our time we appreciate okay. you as always being with us uh, we appreciate your insights on the state of the union uh just a reminder we do have the state of the state coming up next week i believe it was at the 15th or 16th jeremy the 16th the thursday yeah 16th and so we're going to see governor abbott's priorities and just how serious they are about property taxes of course we'd love to have you back to kind of break that down as well uh, we appreciate you being with us and we hope to see everyone next week on taxpayer talks Hey everyone, thanks for listening. For even more content, head over to our website, texastaxpayers.com, where you can find all of our written content, the Fiscal Responsibility Index, and a whole host of resources that can help you navigate the already ongoing 88th legislative session. Make sure while you're there to subscribe to the Fiscal Note and Vote Notices to stay informed about issues that affect your wallet. Thanks.